0: Hey, Don, hey, Donald, you are live.
1: Okay, I didn't hear my music. Okay. Thank, the, thank m- you, the
0: music's having an issue, but you are alive. So Welcome to <laughs> iProtest exactly. with Donald Jeffries, ladies and gentlemen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and as, as those of you out there, regular listeners know, it's always excitement here. Uh, today, our music didn't work. So this is Don Jeffries. As you well know, iProtest, you're listening to it as it, it comes every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C. Although there are special guests today. Uh, very um, impressive educational requirements. Dr. Lewis Coleman is, uh, you know, way beyond my poor powers as uh, uh, a community college dropout to describe this. But he's written an incre- incredible book, which is 50 years of uh, medical advance lost uh, in terms of. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I probably got the title wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll let I'll let you to say the exact title. But it has to do with stress mechanism and. Uh, health and it's very complex but fascinating so we're gonna uh do our best to uh to understand that event. I, i'm sure that the people will be very interested dr coleman thank you so much for coming on
0: oh my pleasure and i just uh, want to say i've been enjoying your uh, your posted commentary on, and boy I, things are really coming to a head right now i think yeah. uh, with this israel situation but um I'll, I'll focus on this. Uh, you know, I think the best I can do under these circumstances is just explain what's going on. Uh, that, that is to give you a, a a quick review of the.
1: Yeah. Well, it did. And so, to so start with, I mean, I read your, you know, I read, I read as much of your book as I could. And again, it's like, it's I'm pretty smart guy, but I'm not very scientifically inclined. So a lot, a lot of it was, you know, over my head in terms, of, I mean, I yeah. understood, I understood it basically, but. How, how did you get started? First of all, what what is the stress mechanism? And and give the exact title of your book, which I screwed up, I'm sure. Oh, um,
0: okay. And, is it... and
1: What is it and how did you come to realize the importance of it?
0: Okay. Um, well, the title of the book, why well, don't you just, I'll just show it? Yeah, hold it up. <laughs> show it up. Can you see that? Okay. Yes, yes. It's uh, 50 years lost in medical advance. And I believe that um, this will one day be recognized in medicine just like newton's principia is recognized in astronomy and physics and so forth it's um it's uh, the most important discovery in uh in the entire history of medicine and it's uh, gonna completely revolutionize everything um now i don't want you, people to think i'm trying to brag on, about myself because my role has just been to do the leg work and the toil and sweat um what happened is i went to a medical school that, that turned out to be just a lucky hit they had the new york medical college had engaged a very famous professor and researcher named johannes rodin he was a swedish guy and um he had it was one of the great pioneers of electron microscopy so he's written books that are still in use today on histology and and he was an expert in stress theory so they hired him to upgrade the basic sciences curriculum at the at the school and so i got the benefit of that two years i, I just happened to attend the school in the precise two years uh, where uh he was uh, he was there and so i got his upgraded basic sciences curriculum which was pretty rigorous and but and i didn't appreciate it at the time now i look back and i think wow you know i was really really lucky uh, but he also gave us lectures on what's called stress theory no okay let me explain that you know you probably know about the discovery of dna most everybody sure. heard about that right um and uh, that explains how genetic we call it the genetic blueprint? How the genetic blueprint is retained and replicated in the body? Now it's it's present in every cell. Believe it or not, every cell in your body, and you have billions of cells in your body, has a complete blueprint of uh, of your anatomy and your mental function and you know all of your structures. And so uh, during embryological development. The um, stress mechanism, you know, well, uh, converts that blueprint into embryological development, and you know the multicellular, complex multicellular structures that that you're composed of. Okay, well, embryological development is has always been a, a fantastic memory or a mystery. Um, you know, so at the time of the DNA discovery the experts in medicine, you know, everybody was impressed. I mean, nothing had ever been accomplished like that before. And uh, it just, the world paused as it were, especially in the world of medical research. But the experts realized right off the bat that by itself, the DNA mechanism doesn't really explain anything relevant to medicine. You know, it's, it's been used since then to catch criminals and all that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but it doesn't explain embryological development, doesn't explain um, how your body repairs itself, doesn't explain how your body's organs are regulated or your blood flow is regulated or anything. And it doesn't explain the nature of disease. So that focused attention way back in 1953 on this uh he was not unknown he was he was an important researcher and um medical theorist named hans Selye and uh, this guy had a really interesting background he was hungarian he spoke like five or six languages he'd been intensely educated in hungary while he was growing up and he had a phd in um you know uh, um uh organic chemistry, and he was tops in his medical school class in a, in a German medical school in Europe. And he got himself, uh, after World War I, uh, I think it was, or, um, yeah, I think it was between World War One and World War Two. he won a, a Rockefeller scholarship. I mean, you don't, that don't come easy. And uh, so he came to Johns Hopkins, and he didn't like it there because they were, they were kind of dis- disrespectful to their professors. And... So he moved to Canada, and he started doing research. Well, anyway, he had, uh, in medical school, got this idea, somehow, that all the various diseases that they presented to him in medical school seemed to have these similarities. They had all these characteristics in common, you know, like fever and malaise and rashes and and, uh, fatigue and so forth, so... He, he got the idea that there's a single mechanism in the body that causes all forms of disease. Well that flew smack in the face of the prevailing beliefs in medical school. And so they laughed him out of even though this top student in his class, you know everybody you know jeered at him and told him he was an idiot and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so did his professors. And so he forgot about it until he, he came to Canada and started doing research. And he blundered into, just by chance, into this, this observation that the, the research rats that they were using exhibited a triad of um, symptoms whenever they were stressed. And this was uh, like an enlarged adrenal glands and shriveling of the, of the thymus gland and peptic ulcers. So he got really curious about this and he started taking these rats and he'd cook them, you know, at high temperatures, you know, to stress them and put them up on the roof of uh, of his building in Montreal in the middle of the winter to freeze them, you know, and subject them to loud noises and all kinds of things like that. And no matter what he did, they would exhibit this triad. So he wrote this classic paper back in the 1930s. And then he... Followed up on that, and um, he wrote papers hypothesizing that this might be the basis for a unified theory of medicine um, that could explain the nature of disease and you know, physiology and stress and so forth. Well, that's really high class, you know, esoteric subject even for even back then. Um, but the discovery of DNA. Since it didn't just really tell us anything about medicine, got the um, the real experts back in the time because there, there was a lot of really serious medical research going on in World War One and World War Two because war is the mainspring of medical advance. It's ironic. Mm-hmm. Um, so these medical experts focused their attention on Cellier's ideas. Um, and that inspired a 30 year international search for this hypothetical stress mechanism because what what they what sellier was saying is that this mechanism operates together with it's like a companion mechanism you could think of it as like the missing link in this vast array of medical knowledge about how the body works but this missing link would take the Genetic blueprint stored in DNA and translate it into embryological development somehow. And then the mechanism would remain active for the duration of life. And it would regulate blood flow and an organ function and um, um, tissue repair. So everybody, I mean, everybody knows that you repair yourself. We have animals and people. Have the innate, and so do plants, by the way, and have the ability to heal themselves. Am I making myself clear so far?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. This, you know, again, a lot of it's, but so okay. the, the basis, because when it says stress mechanism, is that related to how I think of, the layman thinks of stress as your anxiety or your, your nerves? Is, is it lace or is stress used in another way here?
0: It includes what you're talking about. Um, everybody knows uh, instinctively that emotional stress, yes, is harmful. It can impair your health. And Selye himself, um, you know, back then he believed this intensely, and they, he believed that. Well, I think back then they were able to demonstrate that even emotional stress can can uh, elevate what is called what are called your your hpa stress hormones that are produced by the pituitary gland and the adrenal glands they actually could test for those things so they knew that when you got in a car accident got banged up surgery, yeah. um got you know depressed you know, oh that.
1: scary terror terrifying physical symptoms i'm mean, adding anxiety attacks people think they're having heart attacks hysterical blindness there's uh you have even people that uh uh called can bleed uh, like a stigmata. I don't know if that's related to that or not, but I mean, these are, these are wild phenomena.
0: It's, it's all explained by the stress mechanism. But anyway, what I was, I was, where I was heading is to just make this that point that for 30 years, give or take, um, hundreds of researchers around the world were devoting their careers to searching for this mechanism and they didn't know what it looked like they didn't know how it worked they didn't know where to start so they tortured animals in all different kind of ways sort of like tesla i mean um, um had and it wound up giving science a black eye and a bloody nose and a bad reputation um because of all this animal abuse um but back then you could do anything you know you had nobody to question you know if you murdered a dog or you know I could go on about that, but anyway, they couldn't find any clue of any mechanism that could be tested or anything related to this. That that uh, they they just couldn't couldn't figure anything out. So governments began to withdraw their support for this research right around the time that I was attending medical school. But and and Dr. Rodin was giving these lectures and. I'm, you know he he went into some detail about the thinking that there is a, a, a layer of highly specialized cells. they knew this back then um, that lines all your blood vessels and is the sole constituent of your tiniest blood vessels, your capillaries and and this is called the vascular endothelium. And they knew that this isolated, the enzymes in flowing blood and the other components in flowing blood from extravascular tissues. So they they suspected that that had something to do with this stress mechanism, um, and they knew that that this uh, vascular endothelium was innervated by the automatic nervous system, you know, called the autonomic nervous system. Well, anyway, there's a lot more information that he provided to us in the medical school class. Well, I think I was the only guy in the whole class who was really interested in this. I mean, to me, medicine was just a bunch of boring memorization at that, you know, at at that time. And it still is. But this struck me like a bolt of lightning, you know, and I sat up in the back row of the class and I and I and I just was convinced like a religious conversion uh, that this was the future of medicine. This was, I mean, Rodine's lectures were wonderful. They were, I wish I had, had recorded them, but anyway, I, I all I wanted to do was get through that medical school torture, get my internship and stuff done. And, and, um, and I went on into anesthesiology, uh, you know, as a profession Mm -hmm. which, is the very essence of stress control if you stop and consider it. Now they didn't teach us this, but in, in my ro- anesthesia rotation, but there is what you call a surgical stress syndrome. So if you have surgery without anesthesia, then you're at a very high risk of dying. And the, what will happen is you'll have a stress reaction during the next 48 hours. It gets worse and worse and worse especially if you go into the, the the body cavities, like the belly or the chest or the head. And so it was so bad that surgeons just didn't want to operate on people if they could possibly avoid it. Um, so uh, the discovery of anesthesia was considered a like a miracle um, because if you were in, you know, they discovered ether, I think it was one of the first ones they discovered, but uh if you were anesthetized with ether you could actually have a chance of having your appendix repaired and live to tell about it so um there's a whole lot of history uh there was this intensive research beginning before World War one because um you know they knew this war was coming everybody knew and uh so the Germans were working on it there were all these medical advances like germs theory and cell theory and and so forth. So, um, there was, it, it was like a uniquely American um, uh, uh, anesthesiology advances. Uh, they, they learned that um, carbon dioxide uh, supplementation can improve surgical outcome along with, you know, during anesthesia. And then they learned that um, opioid supplementation or narcotic supplementation Uh, also could substantially improve surgical outcome. So there was all this really good research done back before, during, and and immediately after World War I. But there weren't enough doctors to provide anesthesia back then. So George Washington Kreil, who was very, very famous, one of the giants of medicine back in those days, uh, had, and had discovered a lot of important stuff about uh, anesthesia and how to control the surgical stress mechanism, wrote a wonderful book called Anosi Association. Anyway, um, he founded a, a school of nurse anesthesia. So all these young girls were taught these principles and they embraced them and they became famous and they dominated anesthesia service. And, you know, so people were now there was all all these surgical advances because now you could start going in and and trying this and that and the other repair. So it it revolutionized surgery. And anyway, what happened was the doctors were jealous about this because they wanted their piece of the pie. They wanted to have doctors managing the anesthesia. They felt that doctors did all the research because back then they really did. And, that uh, you know they ought to get they ought to be the ones you know caring for the patients. So this pair of rascals really, uh, and this is, you want to talk about conspiracy, this is heavy. Um, and I hope Don that you read the chapter in the in my book called the Great Medical Hopes of the 20th century. No, I
1: did I did and I tried and again I, I did my best to get through that, but it was I mean, you had trouble with that. Well, yeah, I mean, it just, uh, because it was so, um, the terminology and everything was, I mean, I I think I understood, because basically, if we can kind of summarize, it was, uh, there was a change, I guess, in when, uh, initially, uh, when anesthesia was provided, it was done in a different way, you said ether and things like that, and then they switched up, and as I understood it, you were you had come up with something that you thought was much safer, and so maybe you want to go to that, like what what you were suggesting any change about what they what they do today with anesthesiology?
0: Well, actually, I don't want to take credit for this. <laughs> you know i I just kind of reinvented the wheel, and i and I'm not going to bore everybody with uh, you know the circumstances that led me to do this, but I was looking for better ways to care for my anesthetized patients. And I just, <laughs> I knew that the way we were taught at UCLA was was inadequate. The, you know, the anest- they, they, they told us that anesthesia has analgesic properties and it just didn't wash. You know, they would wake up, patients would wake up screaming in pain and we were taught to hyperventilate the patients and exhaust all the carbon dioxide. Yeah, out. you
1: talked a lot about that. And, I, and when, I, when I hear hyperventilate, I'm thinking again of a, of a real stress yeah. thing where people, you know, they hyperventilate and have all these physical symptoms because of stress.
0: Yeah. Well, it's very dangerous. There's no advantages to hyperventilation and it's very dangerous. So, you know, it's basically
1: over breathing, right? Isn't that what it is? Yes. Right?
0: Over breathing. You're, yeah. you're, you're depleting carbon dioxide from your body. Yeah. The carbon dioxide is essential for your life. Um, so I'll cut to, ch- to the chase here. And, um, and just say that I I reinvented the old anesthesia technique that those nurse anesthetists had used with such great success, and which had been, I mean, uh, Ralph Waters, who was the founder of anesthesiology, vilified carbon dioxide as toxic waste, like urine. Okay. Very dramatic. He was a master salesman. And um, I could go on and on about. Uh, well,
1: well, isn't that isn't that isn't that what the climate change people say today? Aren't they warning us of the dangers of carbon dioxide?
0: Yes, they are. And I tell you, who else is uh, you know hiding in the woodpile on this? Uh, in my opinion, it's DuPont. They are the ones who are with the big bucks. In addition to organized medicine and big pharma, they're all in cahoots on Villa trying to maintain this hoax about carbon dioxide. Um, Anyway, I learned this, I reinvented the wheel, and I learned how to use um, uh, accumulated carbon dioxide in my patients and narcotics to supplement the general anesthesia. And And the results were wonderful. You know, the patients did so much better, you know. And then I retired for three years, back around 1999. And it's a long story, I invested in trustees and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was so disgusted with the politics and anesthesia that I just wanted to say goodbye and forget it forever. Um, but I was I didn't realize I was just frustrated. I, I wasn't ready to retire. So I was retired for about three years and I had two spoiled daughters that I had to send to college. And uh, so, and I lost a bunch of money in the stock market. So I went back to work and um, in preparation, you know, to get my, my, um, you know, continuing medical education back up to speed. I attended um, uh, one of these CME conferences by Ted Stanley, who was like um, the foremost, you know expert on on uh, narcotic supplementation during surgery at the university of utah so i flew up there and the the uh, first lecture was by this young woman i've never seen her to this day i missed the lecture because my airplane connection came in late but i back then these these kind of you know, education things were serious. You know, and and there was a lot of still research still going on, and um, and especially there was they were looking in anesthesiology research. They were looking for ways to improve surgical outcome. You know, by controlling stress. So the the history of or the 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 era of stress research kind of lingered in anesthesiology for a little while and. So I got the benefit of that as well. So anyway, I read the prospectus of this, and and I, and I hit this information from this gal who who'd given the lecture that, um, um, the what we call factor eight you might know of factor eight. Have you ever heard of hemophilia? Sure. And, okay. All right. And how uh, the Russian czar had a, had a his son was a hemophiliac.
1: Yes, I have heard that.
0: Yeah, the famous history. You you hear about that? Okay. Yeah, it's
1: a very frightening thing for that. I'm sure most people know, but it's when you can't, somebody starts bleeding and it's very hard to stop. And especially if you have a little kid that has it, it's 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 really a terrifying yeah, thing.
0: A horrible disease because it interferes with uh, wound healing. Yeah, um, and you can of course bleed to death and so forth. So I I have been, always been interested in all kinds of th- crazy things like this. So. Um, what she was saying was that this factor eight, that they knew that factor eight, a de- some kind of defect in factor eight, which is a blood enzyme, uh, causes hemophilia. And they also knew that that von Willebrand factor has got some kind of bleeding defect. Although it's usually not as severe as true hemophilia. But anyway, they had discovered that there that this factor eight molecule, enzyme molecule. Is actually a, a chimera you know, or a hybrid. It was two. It was composed of two separate molecules that are released into the blood and they bind together and form a gigantic molecular complex called factor A. One of those components was called von Willebrand factor, which is produced by the by the vascular endothelium and released under nervous control into into the blood and the other one is called factor 8c which is the actual enzyme component and so when they bind when these two things bind together the von Willebrand factor stabilizes the 8c enzyme and then it becomes active and that interacts with enzyme factors seven or eight or seven yeah nine and ten would, would
1: it be helpful to put your uh, your thing on the screen yet or what, what, at what point yeah if yet? you want to put
0: it on the screen so people yeah. can see it yeah
1: well, let's let's put this on here okay this, hopefully this is going to work here we'll see yeah see if i can work this uh there you go can you see that can there, you see that,
0: that doc? i can only see a part of it um okay, it's, it's, is it's, there it's, any right way you there. can expand it so that I we can know.
1: Yeah, okay. I can move, and I don't. I don't think I can. I can. I guess. Yeah, I think that's about as far as I can, can go. It's pretty. Move
0: it up a little bit.
1: Uh, well, I can move it down. I can't move it up.
0: Right there. See that kind of diamond shape? Move it back up so you can see that diamond shaped thing in the middle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, if you look at the at that diamond shaped thing in dead center, mm-hmm. um, at the top is Factor nine uh, down to the lower left hand side is factor eight, and I have a little picture of the of the hybrid molecule, or uh, we call it a chimera, because it's two separate things from generated by two different types of tissues under independent genetic control. So you wonder what the heck did these things have to do with each other? But what that what factor eight is doing. Is its linking um, nervous activity to blood enzyme activity? Okay. Now I could go on. I could talk more about this. Let's, I'll just let that aside for a moment. But I just want to explain that this, during this, you know, as I was reading this after the, <laughs> after the lecture, this hit me like a like a fickle finger of fate. You know, I was just mesmerized instantly. I I did I. Instantly realized that's got to represent uh, some fantastically important physiological mechanism. I wasn't even thinking about the stress theory lectures from medical school at that point. But I'd be, And I'd never gone on the Internet or PubMed. I, I had a computer, but I'd never gone on PubMed. I'd never done any literature research like that. You know, I was just out trying to make a living. But this got me and it inspired me so much. I started to go in and do research using uh, this advanced computer technology that hadn't even existed when I was in medical school. Right. And during the era of stress theory. And it took me six years of just, just like all my spare time. That's all I did. Just go read thousands of research reports. And. I wound up. This it turns out that factor eight was like a Rosetta Stone um, that guided me, uh, and, and I just I would look at these this information. I'd say, well, if this is so, then this other thing must be so, and then I go chasing off after um, you know inf- research information to see if that was correct. Well, mm. finally, I wound up describe you know describing this mechanism and that this diagram is a is a diagram of, of the mechanism. Now, this is all of medical school. We're not going to be able to to go through all the details of this thing, medical school. I mean, in, in this little brief introduction, but I just wanted to explain what got me excited and what led to the discovery. Well, what I discovered, I didn't even realize it was the stress mechanism until sometime after I described it and, um, you know, it, it I'm not the brightest bulb in the world. So this kind of just slowly, slowly dawned on a, like a little advanced year, a little bit, I'm still learning, right? <laughs> and what this is, it's the companion mechanism of DNA. So it works closely with DNA. Now this is what they predicted way back in the era of stress research. These Medical intellectuals, you know, and I owe my discovery of this to their inspiration and the lectures I got from Dr. Rodin, and you know, and in that school, he gave these lectures to something like five thousand medical students in different schools. But of all the crazy people, why why would it be me? i was like, I wasn't a super smart medical student or star star of the class or anything like that. I scraped by but anyway the importance of this is hard to describe in in simple language it it um this mechanism believe it or not explains both tissue repair and hemodynamic physiology that is blood flow regulation and blood flow actually determines organ function so Say if you increase the blood flow in your salivary gland, then you start making more saliva. Okay, just as one example. And there's many, many examples throughout the body. So when this mechanism and the mechanism is activated by combinations of nervous activity and tissue damage. And there's actually two nervous pathways that are closely related. And then there's uh, um, a third pathway, which is tissue damage. And of course, it all depends on which pathway gets activated the most. That determines how the stress mechanism is activated to repair tissues or-
1: What are are the two nervous pathways?
0: Uh, Okay. Uh, I call them the cognitive pathway, which involves your brain and consciousness and the nociception pathway. Now this, now we're going to go into the weeds here if we don't watch it. Uh, But suffice it to say that one of the things that, you know, everybody knew that psychological stress is harmful and that's what everybody was talking about all these years. And, it, it, I mean, people bought a lot of Tesla's or sellier's books. I'm interested in Tesla too. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know. But the problem with with uh, all this talk about stress and emotional stress is nobody understood how the emotional stress impacted the body, how it harmed the body. This explains it. Okay. This tells you exactly how it happens. The emotional stress activates the cognitive pathway, the you know cognitive nervous pathway, and that releases von Willebrand factor from the vascular endothelium, and the von Willebrand factor binds to factor Hc enzyme, and the factor Hc enzyme interacts with this these other blood enzymes. So you have a now you have an activation of factor seven, eight, nine, and 10, you know, that's an, that's affected by, um, nervous activity. So there you go. There's your link. Now I could, you know, to understand it fully, you have, you know, it would require a month's worth of, of right. uh, detailed lectures. But,
1: but basically you're, you're, and it's, it's what a lot of us have thought for a long time that, uh, stress, uh, obviously plays can, we know how frightening symptoms that, uh, you know, if you anybody who's had panic attacks, or you know, it's like it's almost like simulated heart attacks sometimes. You know. You oh know yeah, it's
0: very powerful. It's incredibly yeah. powerful. My favorite example is uh, studies by a Japanese researcher named Kario, and um, he. You remember the uh, horrific earthquake in Osaka, Japan, about twenty years ago? Yes. Uh-huh. Ruined the airport. It was. It was like the San Francisco earthquake, or maybe even worse. Mm -hmm. It took down freeways, and there were three Procter & Gamble factories that were totally devastated, and so people just dropped dead, and the closer they were to the um, epicenter, the more they dropped dead, and the older and more fragile they were, the more they dropped dead, Mm -hmm. Okay. And Cario and his research team went out and they started finding people who had survived and drawing their blood. And he did all these blood studies that demonstrated that um, you had an increased activity of uh, of factor eight and increased blood coagulability, uh, increased levels of von Willebrand factor. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. They did a fantastic job. And, of course, that's all in my book. Then on the other side, if you see those two little uh, molecular figures on the right, Right. yes, Uh well, that's portraying um, tissue factor, which is found in extravascular tissues, and factor uh, seven um, bound to, to tissue factor right next to it, because what happens when you get hurt and you disrupt the vascular endothelium, then you expose Factor seven and flowing blood to tissue factor and extravascular tissues. And that activates the tissue pathway, tissue activation pathway. So these blood enzymes are really, you, we've always thought of them as coagulation enzymes. So that is, there's, they, we call it the coagulation cascade. And the idea was that there's a sequence of, of uh, enzymatic interactions of, of these enzymes. That produces a blood clot and controls bleeding, but it's way more than that. Okay, this explains tissue repair. Now, again, I, I could go, I'd love to go lecture everybody for the next 20 hours on this. Um, but the, normally, this mechanism operates quietly like a Rolls Royce sedan, right? It, you don't even hear it working. You don't notice it working okay but it's it's maintaining your tissues and repairing your tissues when you get hurt you know it starts with quite clot formation and, and then you get inflammation and and you get um um chemotaxis where um cells fr- from outside the damaged area migrate into the damaged area and they start proliferating and uh they change themselves into stem cells and then they, they, they form replacement tissues in the process of the cells know what they're doing, right? Um, and what this mechanism is doing is, is providing the energy that regulates that cell activity. You know you energize these cells and then, and then they start going about their business of repairing the tissues and, and then when the tissue repair process, Near completion, the whole thing calms down, and um, and then you're repaired. Well, what this enzymatic interaction is basically doing is it's generating uh, another enzyme called thrombin, and thrombin converts. Now, biology students will understand this. It, it converts. When you eat food, you your, your body produces a, a molecule called adenosine triphosphate. Think of it. It's like little cans of gasoline it's mm-hmm. it's an energetic molecule and so thrombin enables cells to utilize that um little can of gasoline so it, it it energizes cell and enzyme extracellular enzyme activities okay so that's that's what's going on mean, believe me it took me 20 years to research this and write this book um but now, you know, here's your stress mechanism in it's quiescent stage, just doing just enough to keep your body in good repair. And then you get a major injury. And then maybe on top of that, you hear your aunt died and that's just stressful and so forth. And all of these various stress factors everything from excessive radiation to toxic chemicals like the chlorine in your water supply sink water very bad for you by the way Uh, chlorine is toxic it's like pouring gas or something and you know pesticides herbicides air pollution um we could just go on and on these are called stresses okay and they activate
1: well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, and finish that, and then I'll ask. Go ahead yeah, yeah, the What do they activate? No, I was saying, how does this uh, relate to say? Because um, we we all talk about the body healing itself and everything, and the power of uh, suggestion, the mind being so important. How does this uh, uh, tie in with the placebo effect? You know, people being given placebos and uh, being healed because they think they're getting something that isn't really there. I mean, is this just suggesting the mind can do these things on its own?
0: That's an excellent question, and this it's a it's a beautiful question because the placebo effect is real, and this mechanism explains it. Um, just having a witch doctor come in and jump around and, and make his incantations just shows somebody cares about you. Here you're sick as hell, and <laughs> yeah. You you think you're dying, you're in pain, and everything, but somebody loves you, and they come in, and they take the trouble and time to to go do this dance for you and and maybe massage you a little bit or whatever that alone calms the stress mechanism down okay Mm -hmm. it's just like uh if a person's like one of those people in the earthquake and in japan you know here you are in the middle of the earthquake you're out on the street so you're you're not in danger of having a building fall on you or anything but it's like the world's coming to an end. Things are crashing down all around you. You know, the ground's shaking you, knocking you off your feet, and scares the bloody daylights out of you. Or another example is there was a great um, paper called Voodoo Death that you would enjoy reading. You know, in the African tribes, if, if you if you pissed off one of the witch doctors or the chief of the tribe, they would. Um, you know they would shun you from. Well,
1: the I got it. I got it. Th- there was an old *Leave It to Beaver* episode uh, <laughs> that kind of said what I think a lot of uh, it was a lot of truth in it. I think the power suggestion again, conversely, can do such harm because if you, if somebody tells you, hey, you know, I, I stuck, you know, you know that somebody stuck a pin in a doll of you and they put a curse on you or something. Yeah, I think that you know, wouldn't the stress mechanism kick in there negatively there? Because you know, it's I I I think that has happened.
0: Absolutely, it's an excellent question. You see, because you're stirring up the cognitive pathway, your brain when when you get your your brain, you you have a um, what's called a fight or flight mechanism. It's very very powerful, and it it consists of four subcomponents. There's a, believe it or not, there's a memory mechanism that keeps an audiovisual record of all your waking moments throughout your entire life, even from the time you're a, a tiny baby. All right. And then there's a dreaming mechanism. And every, you know, people wonder, well, you know, what's that? Why do we dream? Well, that's essential for your survival because when you're dreaming. The dreaming mechanism is going through all those audiovisual records to deny. Um, uh, I was just reading this, this about war and conflict. Oh boy, well, war. Yeah, uh, this guy says, so Yeah, so I,
1: yeah. You know, I want to know what your opinion <laughs> is of that.
0: <laughs> it's another excellent question. War makes men crazy. My dad was in World War II, and, and my uncle. You know, one of my uncles was in the Battle of the Bulge and had his uh, colonel blown up by a German shell right in front of his eyes. And he had horrible nightmares. You know, and his cousin Marty told me about that. I loved him to death. Mm-hmm. He was just a, really, just a wonderful guy. But, you know, men come back from war. They don't talk about it. It's too horrible. Right. right. So this is this uh, fight or flight mechanism kicking in. Now, um, I was going to say, you you know, when you get frightened very badly, you release these classical stress hormones, HP, what they call HPA hormones, or hy- hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal hormones, and um, they cause the release of glycogen from your liver, and you know, they increase your, they they release epinephrine, and the uh, uh, epinephrine diverts blood into your critical organs, like your brain and your heart and your blood pressure goes up. And I mean, you know, it's like you're being chased by a, by a wolf or something like that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, prepares you to run like hell or fight to the death. Right. It's called the fight or flight mechanism and nobody's ever understood how it works. Here we go. This mechanism explains how that works. Well, the this acute stress with all the fear and anxiety and everything, and you're running or fighting for your life is actually very, very stressful. uh, But it only lasts for a short time. You you know, either you're killed or you escape. Right. Uh, But you're, you know, you're wasting all this uh, glucose energy and your, your heart's having to work triple time and so forth and so on. So you can't maintain that for very long. That's just a temporary emergency mechanism. So far, so good.
1: Yeah. So you notice White Wolf on there is talking about, uh, so you're approaching terrain therapy theory. Do You know what he's talking about there? White Wolf goes over my head sometimes too. (laughs) He is talking about the immune system being overwhelmed by frequencies, toxins, and stress.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, now, I'm glad you mentioned the immune system too, because we understood the immune mechanism even when I was in medical school. And actually, um, my undergraduate advisor uh, told me about uh, Bruce Click and Anthony Chin, who had been graduate students at Ohio State. Um, and they had discovered this uh, key element um, that explained how the immune mechanism works and how it's activated. Couldn't publish it in the damned medical uh, journals medical journals are just horrible they don't want to let you publish anything that's other than the the standard dogma right and they're worse now than they were then so they couldn't publish there they tried and tried to publish in all these medical journals and they got re- rejected and so um, um they wound up publishing in a poultry journal of all things And about 20 years later, somebody blundered into it in that poultry journal somehow, some, you know, medical researcher. And he looked at it and said, my God, this is it, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. And so then they were able to describe the immune mechanism. Well, now, you know, when you have a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) Nobody knew uh, what the stress mechanism looked like or what it did or anything. So what's happened is we understand a little bit about the, the immune mechanism, all right. And so everybody's trying to attribute these stress mechanism effects to the immune mechanism. And so things like uh, increased blood coagulability and inflammation and and enzyme elevations and so forth. They say, oh well, that's the immune mechanism. And and then they came up with this crackpot notion called autoimmunity right there is no evidence again i owe this to my medical school uh, when uh, i had a rheumatology professor um, this first thing he said when we sat down with him he said let's get this straight there is no such thing as autoimmune this, the immune mechanism does not attack self. you have an immune mechanism all right it attacks the bacteria that get into your body and and that sort of thing but it doesn't attack your cell, and in this COVID, look at this COVID thing. They're, they these idiots have come up with this crackpot idea. That, oh, let's take mRNA and mm-hmm. DNA, and we'll we'll make a vaccine out of this, and we'll and inject. In
1: record it. time, with no testing.
0: <laughs> yeah, they bypassed all the testing. You know, even, even see your all your other vaccines um, cause a. a Immune, react- uh, immune mechanism reacts to body to proteins or these foreign proteins, but it doesn't react to DNA or RNA in anybody. I mean, how could it? Because you know, wolf DNA is just like your DNA, right? So it doesn't react to DNA and RNA. Nobody even thinks about that. This ought to be the first question you ask. Can it react to <laughs> RNA and DNA? No. <laughs> Okay. Pardon me for getting excited. You know, uh, yeah. I wrote a paper on about this. I don't know if I said, check well, out. we should
1: probably, cause I, I know people are probably interested in that. What, what, first of all, um uh, I, I need to ask you what, what, how did your, how do your colleagues or how does your profession react to your work? What was the response to your work? I'm, I don't think it was probably that positive. And what has been the response to your book and were you outspoken about COVID and did you become even more popular within the, profession doing that
0: (laughs) uh i am shunned they know who i am they i could go on and i could write an maybe i will write a book autobiography or something to to explain how they slammed the door in my face in a dozen different ways now um i was helped tremendously by ted stanley who was the, the opioid expert and he he was really excited but then Tragically, he died of cancer, of all things. And Dr. Rodin himself just died maybe four years too soon. If he had just lived maybe four years longer, I could have called him on the phone and said, "Hey, you don't know me, but I found what you were talking about." Mm-hmm. And this guy was on the Nobel Prize committee, and you know that's the kind of person he was. And today, it's like stress theory is forgotten. And it's thought to be repudiated, um, but it was never repudiated. Uh, It it has always been the best prospect for a a genuine theory that explains the nature of disease and tissue repair and everything. Um, But it's like big pharma, and I'm convinced that they're playing a major role in trying to keep it forgotten. And they... They control the journals. They control the medical schools and the medical boards and everything. So you're not,
1: you're not practicing at all now. Are you still, do you still have your uh, medical license?
0: No, I retired. And um, that's uh, another long story, but um, let's just say that um, organized medicine knows what this is. There's no question. They know what it is and they know they don't want it because medicine is you know doctors are sort of like priests mm-hmm. you know they, they're 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 trying to sell something that they can't deliver right yeah. <laughs> yes. so you go to a doctor he's like uh, some idiot car mechanic who says oh well hey you got a rattle here well let's <sighs> the muffler okay that didn't work well okay let's 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 right. replace the leg okay <laughs>
1: well you, so- you, you sound to me like you're preaching a holistic concept basically
0: well, actually, what I'm going to say is I'm, I'm just in the process, actually, of writing another essay that I'm going to publish in um, um, Contentment Magazine, which is a publication of the American Institute of Stress, which, by the way, was founded by Hans Selye, you know, way back in the day, mm-hmm. still there. So they're, they're, they're willing to look at my stuff. They're, in fact, they're very excited about it. But of course, it's going to be dismissed because oh no, it's not a legitimate medical journal, don't you know? You know, it's just this right. dark magazine, right? <laughs> I, I think I sent you links to some of the essays. I've, I've, I've yes, 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 yes. Yeah,
1: and Very interesting, and your your work is great. I don't the only the only thing I would suggest is that you know, I mean, I, I have a pretty high IQ, but it's it's uh, it's it's hard, I guess, to write about these things without getting uh, mired in the. Right. The language of, uh, you know, the medical right. language that a lot of people say. Right. That's a, I don't know how you make it more uh, user friendly or whatever to the to the layman. I don't know. But that would be the only suggestion I would make.
0: Yeah, I'm going to try. I've, I finally decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a go at that. Um, There's nobody else who could do it. So I'm going to mm-hmm. do my best to write a book that the average person can read without going to medical school and learning all these damn fancy terms and everything. Because right. remember, organized medicine wants all, all those big words to confuse everybody. Right. They don't want you to know. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, they
1: so, I mean, how, how does medicine, I mean, just what, what I brought up, the placebo effect, uh, just, you know, terrifying uh, physical symptoms that come completely from stress. Mm-hmm. Or, there's something that, say, anxiety attack that mimics all of the uh, symptoms of a heart attack, but it isn't a heart attack. It can uh, cause
0: a heart attack. Yeah,
1: or, or even cause, but I mean, just how do, science can, certainly the placebo effect, how do they, because then they would have to uh, go into the area of mind over matter, the power yeah. of suggestion and the body healing itself, but they don't, modern medicine doesn't want to acknowledge the body can heal itself to unless maybe the you get a, a flesh wound and they'll heal up or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, uh, but my, this essay I've just started to work on is going to explain the difference between chronic illnesses and critical illnesses and a lot of things that we think of as diseases like uh, inherited genetic defects are not diseases they don't fit the definition because disease is hyperactivity of the stress mechanism i started to talk about you know the rolls-royce sedan think of it like this normally it's smooth and quiet unobtrusive and effective, does, goes about its business, you know, keeping you going. But if it becomes hyperactivated, then it begins to waste its substrates and supplies there see i used the big board. I, I can't help it you know it's
1: like <laughs> no i mean it's your, you know, you have years of education it, it's hard i know but uh it, it's uh and stephanie green bless her heart and, and stephanie I, I know you've been yeah. through the mill. <laughs> she true. said allopathic medicine has destroyed my life and she's she's uh one of there are too many people like that, that 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 can say that unfortunately they haven't made her better and uh and that's what a lot of the complaints that people have uh about uh allopathic medicine. But, um, when you talk about the stress mechanism in people, so it sounds like either certain people, uh, maybe the stress mechanism is more active in some people naturally, or is it outside influences? Is it uh, being keyed up? Like somebody like me, I'm always keyed up and stressed out and anxiety. So my stress mechanism is probably through the roof. I'm guessing, I don't know. Is that how it works?
0: It's very bad. You need to, you need to try to calm down. If you can, (laughs) Go go to comedy shows, um, You know go run away from your bad marriage or what bad (laughs) job or whatever but you know to go back to the uh, car analogy if you take your car and you don't put oil in it or you don't put gasoline in it or water in the radiator or if you drive it at 200 miles an hour down the city street you're asking for it because that's not designed for that Mm -hmm. so same thing with the stress mechanism, it has its limits, it's a mechanism, right, so when it becomes overstimulated by combinations of environmental stresses, I mean, you're subjected to cigarette smoke, you know, air pollution, you know, chlorine in the water, uh, additives in your food, pesticides, you know, herbicides, I mean, you know, you get hurt, you get traumatized, you know, you know, some girl breaks your heart. All these things. They're stressful, right? All of them. Mm-hmm. And it's the sum total of those stresses that are activating these three pathways that cause hyperactivity in this mechanism. And so when it becomes hyperactive, depending on how it's hyper hyperactivated, you know, it starts consuming its supplies and producing excessive and defective versions of its products and that can cause cancer you can cause atherosclerosis heart disease uh, the so-called rheumatoid diseases um you know when people get in a really serious train car accident or something and they're really smashed up they have get broken bones and everything that will uh cause a, they've learned uh, yeah. Not to operate right away, you know, in the big trauma centers. Um, they'll patch you up, do just absolutely what's necessary, and uh, then wait until things calm down a little bit. And then they'll go in and fix your leg or your arm or whatever. Well, what I was about to say before is this mechanism, now that we've identified it, now we know there are certain drugs and medications that actually help to calm the stress mechanism down and restore organ function and enable the healing process to take place the tissue repair process to become effective like it's supposed to be so you know you can restore health this way um, much better it's like i'll give you an example in my from my own life i had knee I had had a terrible knee injury when I was a kid you know skiing and uh, so I, I uh, I've had several surgeries on the darn thing and one of those surgeries you know I couldn't pee after the surgery that's one of the things that happens to you so they catheterize me mm-hmm. uh, you know they put this catheter in the Right, or they try to uh, wash everything off and, and prevent bacteria from getting in there.
1: Not an infection, I'm sure. Doesn't that happen like ninety percent of the time or something?
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> the urinary
1: tract infection. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I got a prostate infection from this. Oh yeah, cell. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it bedeviled my life for about fifteen years. Uh, about every two years, I'd have an, another outbreak. I went to all kind of urologists and asked everybody I knew and tried all kind of different antibiotics. What they recommended. Couldn't get rid of it, and but meantime I started working on this stress theory thing, this project, and it dawned on me. Gee, I knew the prostate is very poorly perfused. I, there's another big word. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. You get punted from doctor to doctor. Same. Why? Why should you be different? Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, so I mean, I was getting really scared because this is sepsis. You know, it's like a bacterial infection. Yeah. sepsis can shorten your life you know it's not a joke it can kill you very dangerous so it dawned on me that i could use chelation therapy now what's that that uses a chemical called edta or- well i know
1: i know mark, mark lane my uh my mentor you know the warm commission critic that i worked for as a teenage volunteer back uh, you know way back when uh great, great guy. Myram is a civil libertarian. He had cancer at one point and he was the first one I heard. He had to go to Mexico though, to get uh, it, to get chelation chal- therapy. And supposedly it works wonders. And I, he was cured of it. I don't Is that, is that the same yeah. thing you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It'll, it'll also cure atherosclerosis or heart disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's, way it's not,
1: it's not legal in the United States. All right. We can't get it here. Can we?
0: Oh, well, but you, you got a hard time finding uh, a guy who will uh, do it i mean they're doing everything they can to disparage it okay mm-hmm. right? it's it is like a wonder treatment but there's something even better you know what carbon mm-hmm. dioxide carbon dioxide like i started to say is essential for life It, okay here's what it does it 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 enables the what we call the mechanism of oxygen transport and delivery which by the way has been disappeared from all the medical textbooks. <laughs> this is the most fundamental physiological mechanism ever discovered thus far, besides the stress mechanism, it's part of the stress mechanism. Okay, except that you know my my diagram is already so crowded, I couldn't figure out how. Well, to- the,
1: well, the pro the prostate. I think I've read because I, I have a bit of experience in that area too. Uh, the prostate is uh, is like one of the centers of the body in terms of stress and anxiety producing, you know, prostatitis and all that stuff uh, that uh, is, is uh, nerve-driven and it can give you all kinds of crazy symptoms. And I, I, it sounds like maybe that's kind of related to what you went through.
0: Well, it, it develops cancer sometimes and that can kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main thing that's relevant to what I'm saying here is it's poorly perfused. It doesn't, it doesn't have a wealth of capillaries like, you know, an exercised muscle or your heart. Yeah. Or your brain, you know, is rich in capillaries, or your lungs. Okay, so um, it dawned on me that, gee, maybe I can help these antibiotics work better if I use EDTA, because I knew it's it, it's used to preserve blood. That, and when you say preserve blood, the EDTA just halts the clotting process. So you know, when you, you know, take a blood donation from somebody into the plastic bag, then you put a little bit of this chemical in there and it halts the, the uh, thrombin generation and and it halts the, um, the clotting process and that's called preserving blood. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had went with my girlfriend at the time and she was an experienced nurse and we went into this dental office where I, I was working back then and I, I gave myself chelation therapy. I got I, I was able to order some EDTA. In retrospect, I'm lucky I didn't kill myself.
1: Now th- this is this is chelation therapy for your continuing uh, prostate infections?
0: Yes, but I combined oh, okay. it okay. I, yeah. I combined it with a uh, cephalosporin antibiotic. Mm-hmm. And bang, I cured myself. I actually got chills and fever that evening because the the killed bacteria you know, products were being released into my blood. And I got this, i never had real chills and fever before in my life. Well, boy, I learned what that's all about. Um, but that's it. I've been free of, uh, of the prostate infection ever since. Another one, um, there's this uh, problem called interstitial cystitis. That's mostly a problem for women, mm-hmm. but it happens in men as well. Uh, where they get this horrific, intense pain in the bladder. And uh, the urologists have no idea what causes it. They can't find any bacteria in there. They can't, you know, find anything abnormal about the tissue. But the women cry and complain. And um, I, I have a I have a wildly interesting story about this from um, Larry Ann Gillespie, who was one of the the members of my uh, internship group at you know at UCLA when I you know she got she lost her license because she was basically that's a whole funny story. bad yeah. yeah, she she hurt a lot of people, okay But anyway, um, she called herself an expert in interstitial cystitis. Well, um, you know, to make a long story short, um, carbon dioxide, well, here, let me tell you what it does. It, it enables the, this mechanism of oxygen transport and deli- delivery. First of all, it is the elevated carbon dioxide inside your body. Every cell in your body is producing carbon dioxide all the time as part of your normal metabolism. And so when you breathe, you're expelling carbon dioxide. So um, that carbon dioxide stimulates breathing Okay, there's two sources of respiratory drive. They both rely on carbon dioxide. One of them is necessary when you go to sleep. It keeps you breathing. But the primary one makes you breathe when you're awake. And it overrides the the secondary one when you're awake. So carbon dioxide does that. The next thing it does is it opens the capillary gate. um, There is a A gate mechanism that's controlled primarily by carbon dioxide. So, when you start to exercise, your muscles start to generate more carbon dioxide that causes the release of nitric oxide from the capillaries. And then that opens the capillary gate. Capillary gate is also governed by autonomic balance. So, sympathetic nervous activity closes the capillary gate parasympathetic activity opens the capillary now, I, again we're going down another rat hole, um, but this regulates your organ function see so what i did to my prostate basically was i chemically opened my capillary gate wide open so that the the, the antibiotic could get down in there and and go after the bacteria anyway so you know, I, through this COVID contagion, you know, I met this lady who actually had near-death experience from, uh, from the COVID injections. They're very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then she told me that she had interstitial cystitis. So I persuaded her to get a tank of carbon dioxide and, and explain to her how to get a flow valve and and uh green mask and everything and and got her breathing carbon dioxide mixed with room air and she you know she tried it and the and by golly the interstitial cystitis got better now i did this just purely on theoretical grounds based on my knowledge of the stress mechanism and how it works right so just breathing uh, you know i've done my own little private studies Breathing carbon dioxide can very easily triple the partial pressure of oxygen in your tissues. Isn't right. that
1: isn't that what they tell you to do when you're to, to put your uh, put a paper bag over your face and breathe yeah, in?
0: That's why. That's yeah. why. Because you're breathing carbon dioxide into the paper bag, and you keep doing that, then it accumulates a little bit in the paper bag, and uh, then um, you're getting these beneficial effects. But then the third thing carbon dioxide does is it releases oxygen from the hemoglobin molecule in your blood. That's the important thing. So if you breathe just a little bit of carbon dioxide, you're enhancing tissue oxygenation. Well, oxygen is like basic requirement for cells. You know, if you um suffer asphyxiation or which is anything that interferes with the delivery of oxygen to your tissues right that's what the definition of asphyxiation. is it could be anything from closing over your nose and mouth so you can't get any air in and out or um you know choking you with a you know you know and or whatever and but your brain can only go for you know say some old person you you might have you know Irreversible brain damage within five minutes. Yeah. Okay. If you're a kid, there there have been some cases like kids get dumped into freezing water, you know, under the ice or something. And they fish them out a half hour later, and they they survive. You know, yeah. they're a lot tougher. But you know that has to do with their body being cooled down. You know that helps to helps the cells to survive. Anyway, carbon dioxide is the most potent, powerful, practical, safe treatment, medical treatment ever discovered. And back in the 1930s, if you go back and read my book on the chapter of The Great Medical Hoax, the success of the nurses using carbon dioxide supplementation uh, to improve surgical outcome was embraced by doctors reluctantly by the way because they thought carbon dioxide was harmful um but they they learned it's just like miraculous treatment for heart attacks and strokes and smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide poisoning and you know asthma atelectasis pneumonia even inebriation like you take a drunk and have him breathe carbon dioxide he'll sober up okay
1: Wow, I didn't know that. You should, should have carried a paper bag or to run a parties back in the day. Boy, that would have
0: been. <laughs> well, if you read George Washington Crile's book, or there's this uh, formerly famous um, PhD researcher named Yandel Henderson, who did all this fantastic um, clinical experimentation and and um, and theoretical, you know, animal studies and so forth to clarify the effects of carbon dioxide. So they knew this back in the 1930s. All that research, all that knowledge has been down the memory hole. Absolutely hole,
1: gone. Do, do, Dr. Coma, hold, hold look up the screen again and get the title out again. Stephanie Green and some others are interested. They wanted she she came and so she missed the title of the book. What's what's the title of your book you again? Hold it up.
0: Okay. Um, you can find it, by the way, on Amazon.com. And also, let me tell you, my, my uh, I have a website where you get a lot of information for free. You can download my paper and so forth. But here it's called 50 Years Lost in Medical Advance, The Discovery of Hans Selye's Stress Mechanism. You know, another book that's right. just a fabulous classic was r- written by George Washington Krile. It's an O C association, A-N-O-C-I dash A-S-S-O-C-I-A-T-I-O-N.
1: Very cool. Yeah, because these, these are, uh, again, these, this is fascinating stuff to point and I think most of my audience is like me. They're very, uh, they're skeptical. And you see people like Stephanie and there's lots of others that uh, have had bad experiences with what I call the medical industrial complex and so uh they're uh they're they're ready to hear these kinds of things, and it sounds obviously you you're left the profession now, but it it sounds like you were not uh you didn't exactly get along that well
0: oh my god! There. when you were there, you were constantly i guess battling with them oh the, the other anesthesiologist hated me, but you know what's funny? Not one time, not once did any of these guys. Just come to me and say, gee, you know, uh, how do you do this? What's what's your reasoning behind this? What are you doing? No, they'd come and say, you better quit that. Or they'd fire me, right? Or, you know, I'd be doing, I do, I've done a lot of freelance work. And they, they, uh, they oh, he's, he's crazy. He's using too much carbon dioxide. He's using all these big doses of narcotics. You can't do that, you know? Uh, well, Nobody it, it wasn't
1: that long ago that, uh, you know, the probably the 80s and into the 90s, the FDA, at the behest of the uh, medical profession, were uh, they were rating health food stories. Uh, they were, and they still, to this day, doctors still tell you, you know, they don't take vitamins. They don't want you to take vitamins. Remember the food chart pyramid, the balanced diet, and all that nonsense? Oh, yeah. This is what I, I remember doctors to say it was irrelevant what you ate. I mean, so they were, they were wrong about a lot of things. So they, but, and oh, yeah. they never, they never admit they're wrong. Do they?
0: Oh, I take <laughs> vitamin D three every yeah. day. Okay. okay. Every day. And I I haven't had a cold since I started doing that. Well, I'll take that back. I, I, I have my grandchildren have nailed me. Maybe three times, but, <laughs> you know, before that I get a real cold, you know, with the, all the green goo and everything. Yeah. Now it's like maybe last two, three days. And I, barely cough and i get a runny nose and it's it's like a minor nuisance and then it goes away and that's the vitamin d it's wonderful okay so (laughs) you know most of the most of the time you're getting enough vitamins and minerals in your diet that you're okay but um uh, the vitamin d3 i think is worth taking on a regular basis Yes.
1: Says, says Stephanie was actually she was an EMT, uh, so she, she said she was always taught XSC. So this is what she she's so she's learning something here.
0: Well, yeah, I mean it's the greatest thing. I mean it's it's like this fantastic. If you're having a heart attack, that's the first thing you want to do is breathe some carbon dioxide. Hmm. That will immediately revert. See now a heart attack. Every all the doctors jump around and they say, oh well, that's because there's something gone wrong with your arteries. We call that atherosclerosis, right? And your arteries are plugged up. That's what's causing the heart attack. No, the heart attack is actually an event that occurs in the capillaries, the tiniest blood vessels, okay? You know, maybe the purest example of this is the emergence heart attacks that occur with a conventional anesthetic technique where they don't give any narcotic I think that the anesthetic agent is uh, has analgesic properties that is it prevents pain okay
1: I'm sorry Stephanie corrected me paramedic difference I'm sorry about that okay it's just, I, I didn't mean to make the mistake paramedic is what she was
0: okay well the paramedics you know I, I I've been frustrated by them you know they're ignorant. And they they're very the ones that I've met are kind of arrogant. They they think they're just got a, a big third leg, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's a lot of people in medicine like that, ignorant and arrogant. They kind of go together, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, we certainly sort of like the, the typical doctor, I mean, geez, the oh my god. Bedside manner, the arrogance. And I, I worked in a hospital when I was young and I just I mean you you had to practically Assault a doctor in the halls to get them to even acknowledge your existence. Oh, my. I mean, they were above the fray, you
0: know. (laughs) I'll tell you that, you know, just since I quit work, I mean, I've always had an enlarged prostate, you know, and of course I had the prostate infection years ago. Well, the prostate plugged up on me, you know, boom. And I went down to the local hospital, pretty little hospital right down the the street, walking distance almost. And now this is a life-threatening condition because your bladder can burst. It could kill you. I know that even. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just a lousy anesthesiologist, right? I'm not a urologist or anything, but I mean, I've done that since medical school that that, uh, a prostate obstruction is an emergency. It's a dire emergency, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They left me lying around for five hours, six hours. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I, I was hurting like you, all I can say is if women have to hurt that bad to have a baby, I don't think they're (laughs) a hero is all I got to say, man. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, I wouldn't do that voluntarily. Well,
1: Well, that's what the medical profession has come. It seems like our system is just waiting, waiting all the time. I mean, it waits for everything. And it's just, it's very frustrating.
0: We could clean out all that in nothing flat if the stress mechanism were um, good for you take that vitamin d3 yeah and make sure you get it from a good source too yeah Yeah. i I get mine from dr mercola anymore anyway um, um you know like the intensive care units with the critical illnesses well narcotics have tremendous therapeutic properties too and everybody thinks they're dangerous right it, you know, doctors actually think they're toxic. There's, that's the least toxic medication there is. Nobody knows the ceiling limit on on uh, on narcotics. You know, the heroin addicts can go for a lifetime taking heroin every day, bucket loads of it. No organ damage. Okay.
1: Wow, I see this. I've definitely never heard that before. That is fascinating. Wow,
0: guess what? You could <laughs> be a doctor because they don't know her, they don't know about that either.
1: Uh, I, yeah, uh, this, I mean, that's what, so. So, uh, so, what, what is the, then what is because we, we think as a lay person, again, I think of heroin as the, the most deadly drug, this most serious drug you can get. Oh, into. You
0: know, you know, if somebody's an addict who you, you're dumb enough to do that, um, <laughs> just give them the heroin. I go brother, you know.
1: So it doesn't it doesn't affect their health other than that other than it gives them a euphoric feeling or whatever
0: it's, I guess. There's only one way it can hurt you, okay? And that's if you take a huge dose. And especially if you combine it with sedative hypnotic drugs like valium or, or right. you know, name it, even a beverage alcohol. You know, all these things are uh, and then and even anesthesia itself the inhalation agents are sedative hypnotic drugs. They're just like Valium. They work by, yeah, I, oh, well, get to, make sure it's D3, okay, huh? you know? And don't combine it with, oh, yeah, vitamin C. Now that's been, I don't think that, that really helps you. I mean, you need it to prevent scurvy, but um, I don't think it will help with the common cold. But I, you know, my own experience says because I tried taking vitamin D. Like, I think it's been kind of debunked. I actually I saw Linus Pauling give a talk about it, in Marriott Ohio of all things. Mm-hmm. He was very old. Yeah. Anyway, vitamin D three is much more important.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, that's the that's the most fascinating thing I've learned in our conversation about heroin. I, I, that that is amazing. So you're basically saying that other than overdosing, somebody could. We we all tend to be well. We feel terrible. Somebody's a heroin addict, but you I mean they might live a long life just taking yep. heroin.
0: Oh yeah, except <laughs> because they tend to use these dirty needles and share them and stuff like that. Well, that's not a good idea. Um, you know, obviously that's that's pretty obvious, right? But you combine see now um, narcotics will depress your respiratory chemoreceptors okay now that's what keeps you breathing at night when you go to sleep okay is is your when you're awake you're conscious you have a separate called primary respiratory drive and as long as you stay awake and you're conscious you're going to breathe okay because of that mechanism but when you go to sleep then you depend on your chemoreceptors to to stimulate breathing and so actually it's not quite as powerful a respiratory drive. So when you go to sleep, you're in a low stress state um, and uh, you don't breathe quite as vigorously. So you build up carbon dioxide in your body, right? What does that do? It makes your, your mechanism of oxygen transport and delivery more efficient because it's opening the capillary gate, reducing the amount of work the heart has to do it's feeding the delivery. I just popped a couple of deep <laughs> Well, I popped mine this morning.
1: Yeah, me too. I <laughs> take it every day too.
0: Anyway, uh, you know, it's, um, it's it's enhancing the release of, o- of oxygen from your blood into your tissues. Okay. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're having a stroke or a heart attack, you know what they do? Like, it's outrageous. If you have a stroke, they come in. And they say, "Oh, well, you're having a stroke. We can tell because you're doing all these funny things, right? Right, right?" So they say, "Oh, we we could give you streptokinase, but no, we can't do that because that makes your blood pressure go down. That's actually, a, you know, like a miracle drug for heart attacks and strokes. You can't even get it in this country anymore. You have to order it from Germany, right?" Unbelievable. But it was in the 1980s. It was a miracle drug. You have a heart attack or a stroke. You come into the the emergency room and they go blam and the problem was it made the blood pressure go down it frightened the poor little doctors oh no blood pressure's mm-hmm. going down you know <laughs> and she's gonna die i can
1: i can tell you must have been very very popular and it, it, but you you were an anesthesiologist your your entire life right so that was what your practice was right okay so you um so an anesthesiologist i basically you so you you weren't uh, you basically were seeing patients and telling them what you were going to do during surgery or whatever. And then after that, that's, that was the extent of what the, you didn't see patients beyond that. Right. For right. else,
0: Right. Well, now it's way worse, you know, right around 1995, I mean, George Washington cryo and the other medical experts in his time, but he was the big one um, established uh, anesthesia and surgery safety standards. So back when I trained, you were supposed to go see your patient the night before in person. Yeah, okay? yeah you yeah, didn't. Even, yeah. You couldn't even have a life. Okay, <laughs> you had to go to the damn hospital. You had to wait till the evening till they got there because a lot of times the patients would come in late. You know, and so you you'd go, okay, dear, I've got to get up off my backside and go <laughs> drag myself <laughs> to the hospital and see these idiots. And <laughs> they move them from room to room, and you're chasing around. Where did they put them? You know. <laughs> Oh, it was awful. And, you know, but that's what you were supposed to do. And then you would explain the anesthesia technique so that would calm them down. Okay. Back in Crowell's Kri- day, this was serious because they had a lot of problems with, um, you, know, uh, hyper- go- goiters, you know, hyper goiters, hyper- you know, hyperthyroidism because they weren't getting enough uh, uh, iodine in the diet back then. And uh, these were a major surgical risk. The young women, mostly, uh, and they would be extremely anxious because they were hyperthyroid, and so um, well, that's a whole. Like I say, that's another, you know, wacky dive I mean, I, I love the medical history and and um, and the explanations of it. Um, but anyway, we were also supposed to go see our patients the next day after surgery, right? Like it was bad enough that we had to go in the night before. We had to go back in. Like, what do you you'd like? You go way early in the morning, see yesterday's patients, then go down to the operating room, bust your butt all day long, all day long, into the late afternoon, maybe get a bite to eat. And then you got to go back to the damn hospital and, and see the next batch of patients, right? That was your life. And about 1995, now get this insurance companies let loose an edict. Oh, we're, we're done paying for these. Uh, patients to stay in the hospital, you know. The oh, yeah,
1: yes, yes, yeah, yeah.
0: You got to kick them out, and we're not going to pay for anything in this. you kick them out the same day that they had surgery, right? They're doing gallbladder surgery and things like this same day. and send it-
1: Yes, yes, yeah.
0: Okay, well, now, the anesthesiologists have been brainwashed to think that carbon dioxide is toxic waste like urine. So they hyperventilate their patients, and they think they're doing the right thing. Okay, remember Andy Warhol? Sure. Remember how he died after gallbladder? Yeah, I
1: I read that in your book. I I didn't read so that that was your. But when you say so that you think that was caused by hyperventilating? How when you again as a hyperventilating, I'm thinking of overbreathing and from surf. How do you so when you hyperventilate, you do something to stimulate the breathing so that the patient overbreathes while they're under anesthesia. To me, that doesn't
0: seem. Here's what they do: they intubate the patient. They, you, they start an IV first. They stab you, yeah. which isn't necessary. And uh, I didn't do that, you know, the latter half of my practice. That's I, I mass induction like the old timers. But anyway, they they start an IV. And then they give you a combination of a hypnotic agent. Back in my day, it was pentothal, But now they use propofol, which, by the way, is extremely toxic and dangerous. Okay? It... it Kills people, just boom out of the blue, boom. Um, but they think it's great because it, uh, it gives people pleasant dreams, okay and it, it, it reduces nausea a little bit. And they then they give a paralyzing agent that paralyzes your muscles, right? And then that relaxes the vocal cords, and then they put a breathing tube down into your windpipe. And uh, then they hook you up to the anesthesia machine and the anesthesia ventilator, and they like, crank that ventilator up sky high to hyperventilate you. And they'll blow your normal exhaled CO2 level is about 40 tor or, or psi, so they blow it down to about 30. Okay, let well, why, but it, it uh, that's about well,
1: I, yeah, I, I'm beginning to understand that, so I can see how you were. Going into and in the old days, as you said, they would just uh, we've seen the old movies and everything. They just stuck a stuck a they used ether and just stuck a ga- uh, mask on the person, right? Was it seems lot right. simpler,
0: right? Well, okay. Um, this was the first recognized anesthesia safety problem. What would happen is that they'd be using ether by mask, like you're describing. They would you it would take them like twenty minutes to get somebody asleep until they discovered that carbon dioxide accelerates the induction it makes you take these big deep breaths so then you you inhale all this ether and you go to sleep a lot faster right or you become anesthetized a lot faster so then they'd have them anesthetized and they had all these wacky uh, signs and symptoms uh, to describe how deeply anesthetized they were they thought see now while by the way you know pain is the perception of nervous activity um, from tissue damage. We call that nociception. That's, I know, another big word. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say you got a broken leg and you're hurting bad, right? And you come in when you, if you put somebody to sleep with ether, it happens very slowly. And as it happens, first thing, first effect you observe is the patient loses the ability to perceive the pain. He can still talk, He still knows where he he can still be coherent, still knows where he is. Take the mask off his face, you can ask him questions, you know, and he'll answer them. So that conveyed this powerful impression that anesthesia has analgesic properties, that is, genuine pain control properties. It doesn't, okay? It's only pickling up your brain so that you can't perceive the pain any longer. So, now, they don't give the patient any narcotic or anything because they don't think he needs it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anesthesia's got analgesic properties, right? So, you know, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I should, I, I should, excuse
1: me for saying, I should have mentioned this earlier. You you were listening today. This is my first broadcast that we're being simulcast now on uh, free FM. So, let me know if you, anybody's listening out there, dude. Hopefully, it's working. I think I did it right to do it. So, hopefully, maybe Tony can. Uh, let me know if you heard it. I'm sure we'll hear. But uh, and you know, my show, the Donald Jeffrey Show, is coming back on uh, Free FM. Uh, that'll be next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. So I'll be promoting that as well. But I, I just wanted to make sure. And I'm sorry I can't see the Rockfin chat room again. I know there's. I'm sure there's probably comments over there. But I I don't know what happened. I can't. I can only see the YouTube thing. So uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Doctor. No, that's okay. There's been a
0: couple people posting uh, little questions or. Yeah, no,
1: there's that's coming from YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: You know. Also, before I forget, um, I I I think you'd really get a kick out of inviting Rick um, um, Cook. Um, okay. To to come on your show because you guys are like, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You know. <laughs> okay. You be, uh, I mean, Rick is this is this is this is a book that is just like your books. I mean, he's done a lot of digging. His What's family. the
1: title? What's the title of the book? I can't see it from here.
0: It's called Our Country, Then and Now.
1: Oh, okay. Cool.
0: And I, you know, I highly recommend this book. Okay. Uh, um. So, but I'm not going to try to go into that because I've tortured everybody enough.
1: Yeah, send. I think you. Uh, you, if you didn't send, send me his contact info. Yeah, that's. I'll. I'll have to look, check it out and see. sure.
0: Uh-huh. Sounds
1: like we're on the same wavelength. That's what we're talking about: hidden, hidden history, basically, all the time. And you, you know, that's I write about that stuff on Substack, because that's where I guess uh, we found each other it was on Substack, I think.
0: I found you, I think. I bought your book, yeah. and I read it, or at least one of your books, and I read it, and, and it was great, and I loved it.
1: <laughs> which which book is that, Masking the Truth?
0: Uh, here, I, I've got it right here. I think you've published one since I've got this one.
1: Okay maybe it was uh... I have to get
0: my glasses in front of uh, me.
1: It's not that big it's, it's, I I didn't know if you got the one about COVID masking the it Suffice to
0: say I've enjoyed your books. They're you know well, they're I really good really You've done a lot of work and
1: well I I appreciate that and I I uh it's always a pleasure to talk to um someone like you because you're I mean I'm just a I guess a, I I I mean it's kind of of a Rodney Dangerfield thing but I remind people all the time. I I'm a community college dropout. I have a high IQ. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't pretend to be any kind of, you know,
0: no, you were bored probably.
1: Well, yeah, I was. I, and I, I didn't have, uh, I I never had ambition to make a lot of money, obviously. And I succeeded admirably that, but, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to, I never wanted to to do it. If I had my druthers, I I always wanted to be a writer and finally it it was achieved. I always wrote, wrote songs and all that stuff when I was young, but, uh, uh, achieved publication much later than I thought. I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing now. You know, I'm just a full-time writer. I don't make that much money at it, but it's, uh, it's doing, it's not many people get to do exactly what they want to do. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I got another book coming out next year. We're always working on something because there's always something to write about this, this crazy, uh, world we live in, but you, I hope, I hope you write, uh, your book about your experiences you kind I mean you kind of you, you do in, in in this book as well obviously because you're talking about how you developed this theory and how uh it, i can see now how it, it's it's completely contrary to uh the way things are done now did you know by the way that um I, I don't know how many um how many deaths occurred under the old way of anesthesia with ether as opposed to the way now by innovating based on that? because i don't know if you knew this but uh Bill Clinton's uh, mother was an anesthesia nurse, and
0: yeah, she, I, read, yeah I knew that. Yeah.
1: She she killed a couple people, and supposedly the the same medical examiner, Fom, Fommy Malnick, in Arkansas that covered up a lot of the Clinton body count deaths uh, protected her job, and that's why Bill Clinton kept promoting. I I don't know if you heard that as an anesthesiologist. I thought you might have heard something about that.
0: I did. I, I don't remember where I read it. But I I wanted to finish that uh, example. I was just starting to.
1: Yes, yes, yeah.
0: In those early days, where they, they they would just use simple ether with a mask, and the patient would be breathing spontaneously throughout the surgery. And surgery stimulates breathing big time. Okay, make you pant like a steam engine. And so you blow off carbon dioxide. So there were very common heart attacks and, and deaths in the middle of the cases, right? Well, they blew that off because they said, oh, well, you know, anesthesia is a miracle and he would have died anyway and he was just an old Beezer and he has yeah. unknown medical problems." So they just ignored that, right? Mm-hmm, what happened then, they would wake up after the uh, procedure was finished and they'd be talking to you and so then they maybe give him a little bit of you know, they'd be hurting probably like hell, because surgery really hurts, right? Mm-hmm. So They'd stab them with one of these big old horse needles that they had back in the day. And this is before they even had needles adequate for IV access, right? So everything was done, you know, with the gases and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they'd give them maybe a little bit of narcotic and help take the pain away what well, then the person would go to sleep or the research dog either either one, and they would stop breathing and die. Well, that got people upset, right? Why'd he die? You know, <laughs> something's fishy here. And so that's where Yandel Henderson got interested in um, the cause of these deaths. And he researched it and determined that uh, it was carbon, carbon dioxide depletion that was undermining respiratory drive. So when you went to sleep, your primary respiratory drive disappears. Now you depend on your secondary respiratory drive but it's gone because you've wiped it out by depleting carbon dioxide. So you stop breathing and boom, that's the end of you. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was the first recognized anesthesia safety problem. So then um, Henderson recommended having the patients breathe what we what they came to call carbogen, which is a mixture of 5% carbon dioxide mixed with 95% oxygen. And that eliminated the post-op deaths, but it also eliminated the interop deaths. And that surprised everybody. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? And so, well, I, I, I mean, I, I'm probably way out, way, out, way past my time here on your program. But no, I,
1: I I was we we can, I mean we we've got 15 minutes so it's okay with that, that's um, you know cuz you've got a lot to say and but I was I wanted to to ask though cuz you you kind of seem to be hinting at it but so I'm guessing that it was the old way of anesthesiology with the, this this ether mask as opposed to the modern way what, was it less dangerous were there less deaths and injuries as a result back
0: then? Let me let me just tell you the story then. Okay. So like I say they started out just using ether and nothing but ether and well they also used chloroform and right, uh, right. you know two or three other things that are just kind of forgotten today. so um, um, then cryle did did these uh, clinical experiments that prove that uh, morphine supplementation uh, greatly enhances um, um, surgical outcome. It reduces morbidity and mortality. Remember, certain, there's a surgical stress syndrome that they were up against. And uh, during the 48 hours after you, you know you, the end of the procedure, the stress mechanism exhibits positive feedback. Uh, and so the stress mechanism hyperactivity gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and the patients will start to feeling pain all over their body, distant from the surgical site. They'll become delirious and demented uh, and febrile and go crazy and die. It's agonizing death. Okay. So that's what they were up against back in those days. So anyway, um, so they started with ether. That was miraculous because now most of the patients could, just with ether alone, you you could survive surgery and live to tell about it. But you'd still have a lot of problems with the stress phenomenon you know mm-hmm. fever tachycardia post-op heart attacks and it actually increases the risk of cancer and heart disease because it, it you know we don't even know how long the um stress mechanism hyperactivation persists after it's set off by surgery we know that it's going on for you know like at least a month right but it may be going on for years nobody has done the research to to, to clarify that. Anyway, Henderson recommended having the patients breathe this carbon dioxide mixture, right? And that, that was a big advance. So then people started to take tanks of pure carbon dioxide and hang them on the side of their, their anesthesia machines and inject pure carbon dioxide into the breathing circuit. Now, they didn't have any way to monitor it back then, okay? Didn't have the modern catnographs like we have today. Um, but what they observed was, A, number one, it would drastically speed the induction, save a lot of time, make more money, right? Because you get them to sleep quicker, right? Not only that, but they could they could work some more carbon dioxide in the middle of the case, or at the end of the case, and the patient would start huffing and puffing and they'd blow off the ether faster and they wake up faster aha that's great now we can get rid of that guy and go on to the next patient right and in the middle of the case the patient wiggled oh well well we've cranking in a little carbon dioxide that'll make him inhale more ether and you know if you really overdose somebody with uh, inhalation agent then they'll stop moving in most of the cases but it's very toxic and dangerous it depresses cardiac function and all this I, again, I'm, I'm glossing over it. It's not a. It's not a good practice. Well, Kryl hated ether uh, because he observed all these side effects. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, developed a technique where he would give people. Um, oh, uh, what's that drug that you use to prevent seasickness? Um, you know.
1: Oh I yeah, I, I know what you're talking. I, I, don't, I, don't, I Yeah, I, I can't yeah, think
0: of anything you give these big doses of that stuff and it would, you know, it would knock, it would make you and disrupt your mental function. Okay. So you, that was a pre-op sedative type thing. And, um, and then he would use nitrous oxide for his gas, which is very weak anesthetic property, right? It doesn't, it just barely scrambles up your wits. So, but it, you know, it's nowhere near as potent as ether. And then he would give, Local analgesics. He used prilocaine, prilocaine with his big old horse needles. He would inject it mm-hmm. into the area where he was going to make his incisions. And when he couldn't use prilocaine, he would use massive doses of morphine. Mm-hmm. With his old horse needles, and of course, jab you in the leg with these great big old things. Yeah, you know, patients must have come out of the surgeries black and blue. You know, <laughs> all, mm-hmm. all over. Mm-hmm. He he worked it out so that he saw that. Um, when he gave enough morphine to maintain the respiratory rate between eight and 12 breaths per minute, that was good. That was perfect. Okay. That wasn't too much morphine. It wasn't too little. And that drastically improved surgical outcome. So these nurses embraced both uh, the, the, narcotic um, you know, they, they would give these big pre-medication doses of morphine right? Um, and that would speed induction even better, right? Along with the uh, carbon dioxide. And of course, if they overdose somebody with uh, morphine, well, they could just counteract it with, with uh, carbon dioxide, right? Not, not to worry. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they learned that uh, carbon dioxide, you know, it improves your clinical pulse. And, um, you know, so patients would be glowing cherry red from the carbon dioxide because it's opening the capillary gate, it's speeding the transport of oxygen to the tissues.
1: Right, but I, I hate to speak because I, I want you to answer a couple of questions from the chat room. But so, but the bottom line is, Do have things improved or not as far as terms of uh, fatality rate for people going under anesthesia, as, as, under ether, as opposed to today's method?
0: Well, the quick answer is the, the guys who founded uh, the anesthesiology profession ralph waters and they did these bogus um you know anesthesia or animal studies that confused as, co2 asphyxiation with mm-hmm. anesthesia and we'd have to go into the deep into the weeds to, for me to explain exactly how that worked or how the how they they did this song and dance but they vilified carbon dioxide basically you know, destroyed the reputation of the nurses and entrenched the anesthesiology residents in practice. And they were using, they in Waters taught them to intubate, hyperventilate, and paralyze. And they, so now they're paralyzed. So you don't need the narcotic to prevent patients from moving any longer, right? So it's like tying somebody down to a board and putting a gag in his mouth and bonking him on the head so he's unconscious. And then you start cutting on them. Well, the nervous. But, but
1: but but bottom line is, is is it is it more or overall is it? Would you say things people have a better chance of surviving surgery today than they did when they were using ether?
0: Yeah, but not as good a chance as they had when they during the days of the nurses when they were giving these massive doses of narcotics.
1: Okay, so they were doing so basically things. Okay, because I because I want to I want to make sure we get first of all a couple people Houston Hags and a. a someone else was asking about uh, if uh, if time I'm curious about is what are your thoughts on CBD what's CBD CBD I think you mean CBD oil you know from marijuana
0: well marijuana as far as I'm concerned is just like taking a glass of wine it's a mm-hmm. sedative hypnotic and uh, yeah it relaxes you and that's that's beneficial within limits I mean now I don't I wouldn't smoke marijuana um, right. I recommend Putting it in your brownies okay if you're going to right right sure because your lungs are chock full of tissue factor and they're heavily innervated with the autonomic nerve endings and so there are what i the lungs and the brain and the uh gonads that is the testicles and the ovaries and the nerves and the retina um these are just these are tissues that are rich in tissue factor Mm -hmm. Gee, is it any wonder that's where you get this uh, uh, predominance of cancer in those tissues? Mm-hmm. Sure, okay. it's because they're loaded with tissue factor, and then, then if they have a lot of autonomic nerve endings, then that's also um, um, makes you susceptible to stress. Those like your bowel has a lot of innervation, so that's why you get you know these bowel problems. Sure. Like, sorry, I was going to start to talk about ulcerative colitis. Like my friend Susan treated herself with carbon dioxide and then she mm-hmm. quit for a while and the interest or the interstitial cystitis came back mm-hmm. and i said well susan have you been taking your carbon dioxide treatments and I said, no i kind of quit that and, well for god's sake do it you know see, yeah. she went well, back was- now she's convinced finally well,
1: well, and also cat cat goya i mean we're switching gears but she's a couple times, she—I guess—I missed. Uh, she she wants to know what your view on the war is, the war zone, I guess, over in Israel and Hamas. She was interested in think, your opinion on that.
0: I think Israel is the most biggest disgrace in the world. You know, yep. I just there—it's it's a criminal state, and what they're doing to Palestinians. You know, Israel was forged and born in terror. If you go back to trace the history of the jewish culture it, it arose back in the days of alexander the great and you know well i recommend you read durant's history of civilization if you want to hear about this sure but this is this all this stuff that uh, the 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 bb i don't want to tell you what i call him. um you know he's just a repellent individual <laughs> mm. what's going on is and we're involved with this I'm so ashamed to be an American because, of, I mean. Well, and
1: everybody with a public, we can say that you know this on shows like this, but if you look at the Republican debate, the Democrats, the same thing. I mean, they're they're just vying over who can be uh, more pro-Israel. It's it's really ridiculous. And and Stephanie Green reminds me that it's CBD is from hemp, so not technically from marijuana, but from hemp. And hemp
0: is, uh, I would, hemp is these strands uh, that they uh, they get from from growing marijuana, then they put it in, a, in water, and just let bacteria, you know, degrades it. Then you, you shake it around and, and all the flesh falls off and you get these strands. And that's, that's him. But yeah. um, and Stephanie, know,
1: Stephanie also said she's considering buying your book, but I think she was a little offended by the comment about uh, paramedics being arrogant because she's certainly not arrogant. She's not one. That's for sure.
0: Well, it's just my experience with, with them. And, the, and if she knew my experience, she would probably sympathize with me. Um, you know, they, you know, I had with this big old paramedic. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I won't bore you with
1: yeah, it. Yeah, let's say, uh, and, and with, I want to, I want to, we only have five minutes. I want to make sure, uh, I don't think I missed any other questions, uh, in the chat room. Um, uh, a lot well, of people you
0: know, just tell them that, that, um, you know, doctors are even worse than paramedics.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's. Uh, what, what do you think? There's a comment about fluoride in the water. Why do we have poison in the water, doctor? I mean, they, we, we've had it for sixty years, and they think you're a kook if you say. I mean, there's a there's a there's a poison symbol on fluoride, a bottle of fluoride. Why is it in our water?
0: Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, I was taught in medical school, and you know. You know, everything else that I was taught, best of my knowledge, was the truth. They taught the uh, mechanism of oxygen transport and delivery. And, you know, but that was the influence of, of Dr. Rodine, you know, who was in charge of everything. Um, you know, I think that there's good evidence that the fluoride strengthens teeth and... and Yeah, and that's what they, that's they... But it's for sure toxic. I mean...
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. To, I guess and, you would say we...
0: You know, yeah, I, it's
1: it's uh, I mean, what, it created another industry. I mean, th- I mean, if there hadn't been fluoride uh, in the in the water, we wouldn't have this bottled water industry. We wouldn't have all the uh, filtered water tra- filtration systems and all that. So we uh, we so I, I want we'll to have a few minutes. So I want I want to give you is anything you missed that you wanted to say, and certainly at the end, I want you to make sure to give out any links and uh, promote whatever you want to promote. Again,
0: oh gosh. Uh, There's so many different things, so much more I have to say that um, uh, I, I guess the, the basic message is revolution is in the air. It, it, this, is, this is it. This is what everybody was looking for for years. It someday will revolutionize medicine and it will introduce a new era of human existence, you know, free from the Eternal curse of disease and premature death. Um, we'll be able to quickly control disease, you know, and, and it'll it be safer. The treatments will be safer. They'll be predictable. They'll be practical and comfortable. Well, there's
1: certainly there's certainly no reason for the life life expectancy to be going down in America as it has for the last three or four years. I mean, our life expectancy should be significantly longer at this point, don't you agree?
0: Totally. That that is, by the way, these COVID injections they're they're what they're injecting what amounts to live virus. Normally, when you get a bad cold or because COVID is a, a cold virus that's been weaponized with the, you know, military res- research. It's called coronavirus. And, you know, so this weaponized coronavirus, you know, causes a really nasty disease when it gets into your lungs, right? And, mm-hmm. and that actually causes systemic ramifications, you know, symptoms. Makes your hair fall out, destroys your sense of smell and taste and all this. So does the flu virus, by the way, when it becomes epidemic like in the 1925 or whatever, you know, epidemic.
1: 1918, yeah, yeah.
0: 1918. Yeah. Um, And which by, I blame government for that because it crowded all these, you know, people in tight quarters and, you know, they're breathing on top of one another. And virus, the viral virulence is exaggerated in the presence of uh, victim crowding, okay? Absolutely. Going on. But when you inject that did or MRNA, you know, genetic material directly into somebody's bloodstream, you're bypassing the lungs. You're not confining it to the lungs anymore. And it attacks the vascular endothelium throughout the body and hijacks the cells to replicate itself. And it wrecks the vascular endothelium throughout the body and increases its permeability. So you start leaking tissue factor from your extravascular tissues into blood, and you're also allowing factor seven to escape from blood into the extravascular tissues.
1: Well, yeah. I, I we we're we just about run out of time, I, and I, I we I've I've learned a lot. I mean, the most amazing thing I learned that, you know uh, is heroin may not be bad for you. Who thought? I mean, that's you talk about that's about the most politically incorrect thing I've ever heard, Doctor Coleman. That's incredible. So. Uh, yeah. I, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I never, ever thought I would hear that. So that, that's fascinating. That alone is amazing. But um, so uh, again, give out the and free world FM. Sorry, if, if you hear me on free world FM, hopefully it's a success. I think I started it up right. We'll be going there for the Donald Jeffrey show uh, this Wednesday. Be listening 8 p.m. Eastern on free world I'll send out more things to you. Uh, uh, every, thanks to everyone in the uh, YouTube chat. You, you Rockfin Chat. I'm not neglecting you. I'm sorry. I just I, I'm not seeing it now for some reason. I don't have I don't have access to it. So uh, whoever's over there, I appreciate you being there. I appreciate everyone listening. Uh, please uh, close Dr. Coleman again. Give out the name of your book and your links and and. Uh,
0: um, we really well, enjoyed having you. I'll tell you what, just just tell people to go to my website uh, where they'll find the book. It's www.stressmechanism all one word. com. Okay. And uh, the book is sold on Amazon. Um, so um, it's kind of pricey. And the next version is going to be, uh, you know, a lot less expensive. I
1: give the title again. It's 50. 50.
0: Yeah. 50 years lost in uh, medical advance. The discovery of Hans Selye's stress mechanism.
1: Oh, that's great. Well, I pre- we appreciate you being here. Dr. Lewis Coleman. Thanks so much. There's so much to go through. we covered a lot of information. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Again, thanks to everybody listening on Free FM and Rockfin. Uh, I'm going to close that myself. And I uh, appreciate everyone being here. Thanks, Dr. Coleman. And uh, we'll see you next week on iProtest.
0: Okay, sounds, sounds great. Thanks. thanks, Donald.
1: Take care. Thank you.